Greetings and Happy Easter. It takes everything I've got to not say good morning, but I've come to notice that many of you are not listening in the morning, and many of you are not even listening on Sunday. So, whenever you hear this, this is my message for Easter. Been another interesting week uh, for all of us on a variety of different levels. But today I want to start with a seemingly random observation. I understand why many of us uh, have been lamenting the fact that we cannot be part of some large Easter gathering of our choosing. I really do get it. However, if you stop to think about it, for most of us, we're actually coming the closest we ever have to understanding what it might have been like on that first Resurrection Sunday. Instead of a huge gathering with uplifting music and an inspiring message, the things we've come to expect on Easter Sunday, the first Easter saw a small group of Christ followers immersed in an environment of fear, confusion, and uncertainty. They just didn't know what they didn't know. But they did know that things were really, really different from the way they had been just a couple days before. I wonder, does this sound at all familiar to you? So back to this series of messages we've been calling Living at the Crossroads. Last week, I invited you to picture yourselves at an intersection that we called Triumph and Tragedy. And as we saw at that set of crossroads, what appeared to be a triumph was in reality a tragedy because most people there failed to embrace the true significance of Christ's transforming presence. Today we're at a similar intersection with a dramatically different outcome. Today what initially appears to be a tragedy in reality ends up providing the opportunity for all of mankind, including you, to experience a triumph for all of eternity. While the resurrection story is filled with hope, under the extraordinary circumstances in which we find ourselves today, I want to walk through the experience with one of the characters who, to me, exemplifies this transition from tragedy to triumph, in ways that I suspect many of us can identify with. As I share some, excuse me, as I share some reflections based upon Peter's experience at the crossroads, I encourage you to let your mind drift to thoughts about your own life journey and the crossroads you've faced. I'm cautiously optimistic that many of you already have or will eventually take time to read through the various biblical accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection. So for much of my message today, I'm simply going to refer to or paraphrase various parts of the story without actually taking time to read them. Just to refresh your memory, I'm referencing the Gospel according to Matthew, chapters 27 and 28, the Gospel according to Mark, chapters 15 and 16, the Gospel according to Luke, chapters 23 and 24, and the Gospel according to John, chapters 18, 19, 20, and 21. And I'll even go back a little bit further and and draw from some other stories leading up 
to the crucifixion and resurrection, but you'll be able to follow along. So now we are at that crossroads of tragedy and triumph. And as we begin to progress down the turn toward tragedy, one of the first ones I'm going to pick up on is the tragedy of Peter's boast. And this came during what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. And in this scene, the disciples and Jesus are preparing to partake in the Passover meal. And Jesus knows that this is going to be the last time he will share this with his beloved followers. So you have this closest group of Christ followers gathered together in an intimate setting. And as they share this meal, Jesus knows what's to come. And at one point, as they're gathered there, he explains that in the days to come, very soon, some will turn away. And those in that close-knit circle look at each other. And Peter, with his tempestuous, impulsive nature, speaks up and says, even if everybody else bails, even if others turn away, not me. I won't. And Jesus pauses And he confronts the tragedy of Peter's boast directly. And he makes that prediction personal. And he says, yes, Peter, you will. I know you think you won't, but I'm telling you, you will. Before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. Now, I didn't know Peter well, but what I get... The impression I get from him in Scripture, obviously, suggests that he's thinking, oh no, not going to happen. And and that's the, the tragedy of Peter's boast. As we continue down that road of tragedy, we progress rather quickly to the tragedy of the arrest. And you have this same close group of Jesus' friends, men who had been in the trenches with him as he had been involved in his earthly ministry for for years now. And Jesus has this sense of urgency. He knows the time is drawing short. And they're gathered in this garden and we're told that Jesus spent some time in prayer with a great burden on his heart. And the tragedy of the rest comes when there is this group of soldiers and religious leaders who come looking for Jesus. It's dark and they bring torches and they've got clubs and there are soldiers and they've got swords. And the reality, the tragedy, the fact that these religious leaders are coming to not just reject Jesus, but to literally arrest him begins to sink in and all of that confusion all of that chaos speak to the tragedy of that moment and in the midst of that tragedy of the arrest we we progress very quickly to the tragedy of of Jesus rebuke 
Again, many of you are familiar with this story, but as they come to literally lay hands on Jesus and arrest him, Peter steps forward and he draws his sword and he takes a swipe at one of those people there to arrest Jesus. And he literally cuts off his ear. But the tragedy of Jesus' rebuke in this moment is in all of this chaos and confusion, Peter lashes out thinking he's defending Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, put the sword away. Now is not the time. And I think about that moment. And I'm sure when Peter lashed out with his sword, he thought he was doing a good thing. Because Jesus had suggested that they strap on the sword in the first place. And so in that moment, in addition to the, the tragedy of the, of the confusion of the arrest, Peter has to process this tragedy of rebuke where he thinks he's doing what Jesus wants him to and Jesus says, Peter, no, not now. So the story continues as we move further down this road of tragedy. And again, remember Peter's boast and Jesus' prediction of denial. He's now been arrested. Peter's been been checked. Jesus says, no, we're not going to fight right now. And he probably stood there with others just wondering as they led Jesus away. But along with some of the others, Peter follows along behind because he wants to see what's going to happen. And that's where we encounter the tragedy of Peter's first denial. Folks are gathered around. There's certainly a hub of a hustle and bustle of activity. And, and people are trying to see what's going on. And they're beginning to gather some leaders together so that they can confront Jesus with the charges they have against him. And in this chaos and confusion, people are hurling accusations at Christ. And Peter's there just kind of hanging on the fringe because he wants to be there, but now he doesn't understand what his role is. And he's, as he's standing there, each of the gospel writers tells it a little bit differently, but, but as he's standing there, someone comes at him with a simple question. You aren't one of them, are you? Something about the way Peter looked made them think maybe he was with this band. So we have a simple question for this first denial. And we have a simple denial from Peter's perspective. Nope, not me. I'm not one of them. So that first denial is just kind of there. Not a lot of anxiousness. Not a lot of hype. But then as the scene continues to unfold, Peter's still there on the fringes, wanting to be close enough to hear, but not so close enough to get drawn into it. And once again, there's another simple question. Again, each of the gospel writers says it differently. But again, it's a simple question. You aren't one of them, are you? Some of the writers tell us at one point it's a child who's questioning him. And Peter offers another simple denial. No, I'm not. And I wonder myself... At what point does it start to sink in for Peter? Was it at the tragedy of denial number one 
where he said, nope, not one of them? Or was it at the tragedy of denial number two, where all of a sudden the gears start to catch and Peter starts to make a connection between what he just said, nope, not one of them, and the prediction Jesus had made with regard to his denial. Maybe it hadn't hit yet. Which brings us to the tragedy of denial number three. In this case, we're told we, we have an eyewitness accusation. Someone says, I saw you with him. Just imagine what Peter felt in that moment. There's all this venom, all this viciousness being directed at Christ. And now someone's saying, I saw you, Peter, with him. One of the gospel writers tells us that the person making the accusation was actually a, a family member of the person whose ear Peter had cut off and whose ear Jesus had miraculously restored. So all of a sudden, the denials are getting real and personal. And after this third accusation, we have an emphatic denial and an emphatic rejection. The Bible paraphrases this or subtitles this that Peter disowns Jesus. He curses. He calls down curses and says, no, emphatically, I am not a part of that. And at that moment, the rooster crows. And if you've watched the film The Passion of the Christ, there is that incredibly gut-wrenching moment when Peter issues his emphatic denial number three, when the rooster crows, and Christ looks and makes eye contact with his friend Peter. And you can just feel it. You can see the hurt in Christ's eyes, and you can feel the life draining out of Peter in that moment. And as I think about the tragedy of denial number three, and please understand this is total speculation. But I'm tempted to read between the lines a bit. Understanding our incredible human need to cast blame. Knowing human nature the way that we do. Do you ever wonder how the other disciples responded to Peter's denials? Because he had been so outspoken in his boast. Because he had been so emphatic in saying, you know what, doesn't matter what happens with other people, I'm there for you, Jesus. Do you wonder if anybody whispered under their breath, yeah, where's all the tough talk now, Peter? If anybody sidled up to him and said, Hey, big guy, I thought you said you had his back. We don't know. 
We know Peter felt it enough for himself whether anybody said anything or not. But it just, to me, drives home the tragedy of denial number three. And that denial sends us rushing towards the tragedy of the crucifixion and the burial. Friends, I don't need to try to describe it to you. Many of you have seen your own images and you can use your own imagination. But the tragedy of seeing someone you love falsely accused. The tragedy of seeing those you counted on most turning their backs in a time of need. The tragedy of wondering if you could have or you should have done more to prevent it. I have to believe that Peter couldn't help but think, what if I'd spoken up? What if we'd all spoken up and says, yeah, we're with him. What are you going to do about it? The tragedy of watching someone you care for deeply, who you believed in completely, as they are beaten, as they are mocked, as they are tortured, and as they are killed on a cross like a common criminal. The tragedy of the crucifixion. The tragedy of the burial. Realizing that your hopes, your dreams, your desires are dying with your loved one as he is sealed into a tomb. Friends, Peter had left everything to follow Jesus because he believed in all that he was. And now, the tragedy of the crucifixion and the tragedy of the burial are making it very clear to Peter that things are not going to be the way he thought they would be. And that brings us to the tragedy of the empty tomb. Friends, we know the story. But as I say, the tragedy of the empty tomb, don't lose sight of the fact that in that moment, Peter and the rest of the disciples didn't know what they didn't know. To them, the empty tomb was a tragedy way before it was a triumph. We have the luxury of 2020 hindsight and we see the empty tomb and it's like, woohoo! But for them, the empty tomb was a tragedy. Adding insult to the injury of having lost Jesus and seeing him murdered, now they had the, the insult of what have they done with his body? We can't even grieve because of this one last show of disrespect. And again, it's like, after he was buried, 
when they went back and embraced or encountered the tragedy of the empty tomb, when he was killed, when he was buried, they had to be thinking, it can't get any worse than this. And then his body's not there, and it did get worse. Again, I hope as you're listening, you're thinking about your lives and you're understanding or you're seeing the connection between the times that you thought things couldn't get any worse, and they did. Which brings us to the final tragedy in the story, and that's the tragedy of the resurrection. And yes, you heard correctly, that was not a mistake. I said, tragedy of the resurrection. Because you know the story, maybe you haven't gone there. But did you ever wonder what it must have been like for Peter the first time he saw the risen Christ? First, there's the incredible confusion just hadn't ever seen anything like that happen before. After seeing him beaten and seeing him crucified and seeing him buried, now here he is. How do I wrap my head around that? But more importantly and more personal for Peter, I have to believe there was this incredible conflict of emotion. On the one hand, he has an overwhelming desire to be rejoicing because Jesus is alive. But could there have been an even stronger sense of guilt and shame as he realized he's face to face with his friend and his Lord whom he has failed so miserably? As Peter looked at the risen Christ, I'm wondering if he could also see the Christ looking at him after that third denial. So there is an element of tragedy to the resurrection. But fortunately, that's not the end of the story. Now we can shift to the triumph of the resurrection. Some of you know that I've been reading a lot of stuff by Bob Goff lately. And in his daily devotional around the Easter season, one of his titles said this, Evil always looks like it's going to win right before it doesn't. Did you catch that? Evil always looks like it's going to win right before it doesn't. Now we're getting to the good stuff. The risen Jesus comes to where the disciples are gathered, enters the room, and the first thing he says, peace be with you. He got that they were going to be freaking out. And he said, peace be be with you. Friends, as I think about the triumph of the resurrection, some of you that have been listening throughout this series could go back with me to the first message in this series when we talked about the story of the Good Shepherd. And there in John chapter verse chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, 
I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Finally, those present there in that room when Jesus showed up with the nail scars in his hands and feet, with the wound from a spear in his side, he stood before them and he said, Peace be with you. Now they're getting a glimpse of the big picture and what it meant when Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus and the triumph of the resurrection, Jesus triumphed over sin and death. But because of that, they could triumph over sin and death. Peace be with you. And because of the triumph of the resurrection, you and I can triumph over sin and death. And just think about it, friends. In all honesty, in those early hours following the resurrection, very little had changed in the world around them. The Romans were still in control. The Jewish leadership still had no use for the message of Christ. That hadn't changed. But they had hope because everything could change in the world within them. Nothing out there had changed, but everything could change within them. (laughs) Think about that today as it applies to us and to our situation. This is Resurrection Sunday. But you know what? The world around us isn't much different than it was when I first started talking. It's not a whole lot different than it was last week at this time. But because of the resurrection, the triumph of the resurrection, everything within us can change. So we have the triumph of the resurrection, but that's not the only triumph. We have the triumph of reality. Even with the triumph of the resurrection, Peter still needed to triumph over his reality. And his reality was that he had failed. He had fallen far short of his own expectations and of the expectations of others. He still had to figure out that in his reality of guilt and shame over messing up, how he was going to move forward. He had the reality that in his mind he didn't deserve another chance. And that brings us to the scene at the end of John's Gospel in chapter 21. And again, some of you have heard me talk about this before because it is one of my favorites. But after Jesus has appeared to them in his resurrected form, they're still trying to wrap their heads around this. It wasn't like they had an instantaneous aha moment and it all made sense. They're still trying to figure it out. And as they're doing this, Peter says to some of the other disciples, I'm going fishing. Anybody want to go? Now, for those like me, for whom fishing is a form of recreation, uh, sometimes we get the wrong idea. Friends, I believe with my whole heart that remember before 
Peter bought into this whole Jesus thing, he was a professional fisherman. That's how he made his living. I got to believe that that fishing trip that day that John talks about was not Peter saying, I'm going to go blow off some steam in the boat. I think it was Peter saying, I got to go see if I can still make a living because I'm not sure this Jesus thing is going to work out. So they go out and they fish and they fail. They, they just flat out fail. They're not catching anything in spite of their best efforts. So again, you, you know, I, I don't want to judge Peter by my own weaknesses, but, but I got to wonder if he's thinking, oh gosh, I failed Jesus and now I'm failing as a fisherman. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. But in that moment, they look up on shore and, and Jesus is there. And he tells them to try one more time and they throw out the nets and, and you know the story, there's a great catch of fish and Peter gets excited. I think Peter has hope. I think he has hope. And he, he can't even wait to get the boat to shore. He jumps in the water and he, and he swims to shore because he's so eager to get to Jesus. And Peter has an opportunity to confront his reality. The tragedy of reality for Peter was that he wasn't good enough. The triumph of reality was he didn't need to be good enough because Jesus was. When Peter got to shore, there was this exchange where Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And he, he actually says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, it's easy to think, well, is he talking about the other guys around the campfire? Is he talking about the guys in the boat? Friends, remember Peter's boast when he said, Jesus, I love you more than everybody else because I've got your back. I, I really think Jesus is asking Peter, have you learned your lesson? Three times he says, Peter, do you love me? And it's interesting because in, in our translations, most of them, it's, it says the same thing each time or very nearly the same thing. But but in the original Greek, there are two different words there being used. And, and Jesus is saying, do you love me? And he's using a word agape, which is kind of this incredibly deep, self-sacrificing, uncompromising love. And he's saying, Peter, do you love me this way? And the newly humbled Peter responds with a different word. Yes, I love you, and it's phileo love, which is kind of like brotherly love. And it's a, yes, I really do love you, Jesus, but I get that I don't have the capacity to love you in the way that you love me. But I do love you with, with what I've got to offer. I think that exchange, Peter's saying, I get it. I get it. My best isn't good enough. But I'm good enough because your best is. The triumph of reality is still true today. We need to admit our need, our incapacity, and we need to accept his capacity. 
Our best will never be enough. But his best is always more than enough. It's kind of like we talked before, maybe even last week, about confessing, admitting that we have a need, admitting that we have a need we can't meet for ourselves. And then receiving, receiving the reality that he is enough. And because he is enough, we can be enough. Which brings me to the final part of this intersection of tragedy and triumph. And it's the triumph of restoration. The triumph of reality brings us to this final triumph of restoration. Friends, and and we all need to grasp this. Regardless of how much we've messed up, regardless of how many times we feel we've let Christ down and we've let others down, every one of us is offered the triumph of restoration. That's what the resurrection celebration is all about. Also, regardless of how good we think we've been, regardless of how few times we've messed up, we still need to humble ourselves and surrender to the triumph of restoration. I said I wasn't going to read a lot of the stories to you, and obviously I haven't. But I'm going to close with just a couple of verses from John chapter 21. So Peter and and Jesus have had this exchange. Uh, Peter, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I love you. Not in the incredible sacrificing way that you love me, but I, I do love you. And and they go through this, and he, and he says, Peter, if you love me, then feed my lambs. And they have the exchange again. If you love me, feed my sheep. And then he asks again, Peter, do you love me? And I'll pick up with verse 17. The ter- third time he said to him, and friends, I, I hope it isn't lost on you, um, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Oh, three. How many times did Jesus say, Peter, do you love me? (laughs) Oh, there's a method to this. The third time, the worst time, the, the most painful time that Peter denied Jesus. Now we have the third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know what I'm capable of. You know what I'm not capable of. You know how I've messed up. You know how I want to make it right. Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Three denials. Three times, Peter, do you love me? Three times, yes, Lord, I do. To the fullest extent that I'm capable, but I understand my own limitations. But the triumph of the restoration is that Peter in spite of messing up, is restored and released to live out his earthly life in service to Christ and to live out his eternal life in the very presence of God. Regardless of your past failures, 
and regardless of your past successes, the message is the same. The risen Christ says, if you will acknowledge your limitations, if you will embrace your complete dependence upon him, dependence upon him, and if you will walk in your love for him, then he invites you to come and follow him today, tomorrow, and forever. As many of you know, one of my other favorite Easter scenes is when Mary encounters the resurrected Christ outside the tomb, and she doesn't recognize him until he speaks her name. I'm always moved by that moment when he just says, Mary, and all of a sudden it all falls into place. Today I invite you to apply that imagery to John chapter 21 and to your life. Imagine that you're sitting face to face with the risen Christ, feeling the full weight of your unworthiness. And he calls you by name. And he simply says, Steve, do you love me? He is just a prayer away right now, waiting for you to feel the hope that comes from the triumph of restoration. Will you pray with me? I should just take a breath and settle yourself. I want you to understand whether you're hearing it for the first time or whether you've heard it Jesus wants us all to be touched by the triumph of restoration. And all we have to do is embrace the triumph of the reality that we are never enough, but he is always enough. And he wants more than anything for us to embrace that. So today, as you again picture him just looking at you and calling you by name and saying, do you love me? I hope, I pray that you'll say, yes, Lord, I love you. Maybe it's for the first time in your life you're saying, yes, Lord, I love you. I understand that I've just messed up. But more importantly, I understand that you forgive me and that you want to restore me. Or maybe you've been having this conversation with him for a long time. And again this Easter, as he looks at you, calls you by name and says, do you love me? You're going to say, yes, Lord, I love you. I said it years ago. I said it last week. I said it this morning earlier. But yes, Lord, I still love you. And with your help, with your strength, I will follow you. Father, as we think about this incredible time that we're in, all of us are responding in a plethora of different ways, and we're all facing our own unique challenges. But the beauty of it is, Father, none of us have to face it alone. And I pray that we would be increasingly mindful 
that you came forth from the grave triumphant over sin and death so that we might be restored and that we would embrace your power to walk forward having been fully restored. And Father, if anyone who's hearing this at any point in time is is having that conversation with you for the first time where they said, yes, Lord, I love you. I want you to restore me to a right relationship with you. If anybody's saying that to you for the first time, Father, then I pray that they would reach out to someone, whether it's me through any of a plethora of different ways of contacting me or somebody else in their family or someone in the room with them right now. I just pray that they would speak up and say, you know what? I accepted the restoration of Christ on Easter in 2020 in the midst of a global pandemic Jesus reached out and revealed himself to me in a way that he never has before and I just want to acknowledge that so if you made that decision just tell somebody so that they can celebrate with you so that they can support you if you've been walking in that relationship forever friends just lean into it we have been restored for a purpose just as he was resurrected for a purpose And as we move forward, we can continue to rest in that confidence. In the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and the very Son of God, we pray these things. Amen.